0: captain greetings listeners this is your captain michael cave and welcome aboard captain caveman's cruise ship we've got a Another special guest with us today in honor of uh, the Marines' birthday this month, we have a retired Marine, Aaron Robertson. Aaron, welcome aboard Captain Caveman's cruise ship.
1: Hey, thank you, Mike. I'm looking forward to to talking with you and learning from you. Hopefully this is a great opportunity. I don't know Um, what you're going to
0: learn from me. Yeah, well, I've been at this a little bit now, and it's been getting better and better. So I really like the conversations that we're having with folks. We're uh, really taking a deep dive into topics, and it's peaking interest across the board. We've got a pretty diverse audience, I think. So I just happen to be tapping into people that I've connected with over the years, and apparently I know a lot of people. <laughs>
1: so, yeah. You know, I was listening to a, f- a few of your uh... Podcast earlier today, you know, I, I'd encourage anybody listening right now to listen back to some of the other ones too. You do a great job with this.
0: Oh, thank you. And it is a a craft of sorts. I really have enjoyed the guests that I've had on board, and there's always some banter back and forth. I'm sure we'll have some of that here. But I do have to ask if you get seasick, even though this is a virtual cruise ship.
1: <laughs> no, I, I do pretty good in the water.
0: Cool. Have you been on cruises before? I've been on a few.
1: You know, I, I've been on one civilian cruise. I've been on ships plenty of times in, right. in the Marine Corps. In my time on a civilian cruise ship, we went down the west coast of Mexico. And admittedly, I don't think I was uh, terribly fun to be with. It was just before we deployed to the desert. And so that was 2002 at the time frame. Oh. So I, I don't think I was... a. Uh, Extremely fun to be with. My mind was uh, in a different place, <laughs> but right. uh, I, I certainly enjoyed it. We'd love to take a cruise up to Alaska sometime. My wife likes. Mm.
0: Well, I am. I'm really curious to hear about your military career since you were in the Marines. That is something that I'm. I've just been really curious about. The main thing is you just touched on something that's interesting that you weren't necessarily fun to be around, and that you were in a different state of mind can you kind of get into what that means were you mentally having to prepare to go abroad go to war or is it just anytime you deploy you're just different
1: <laughs> that's that's a really good question and uh i i, w- I, I think my My kids would tell you I'm just I'm just different, (laughs) but no, I I, at that time we in 2002, just before we deployed in 2003 to to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and then up into eventually up into Iraq. My wife and I had um, three small kids and uh, we had moved out here to uh, California in 2000 from from Virginia. And I was a reserve uh, Marine at the time. I'd, I was in the Marine Corps Reserve. I'd already done a uh, full tour on, uh, on active duty for about five years. Mm. And I was, in a, at, th- at that point, an infantry officer. And I was leading an infantry platoon out of uh, San Francisco, and our battalion was kind of stretched across the, the Western states. And right after uh, the the uh, attacks on September 11th, 2001, I got a call to get the Marines ready. And I had just started a new job. I was working for VSP, the eye vision benefits company. And, yeah. and uh, I, I got the call to uh, get the Marines ready after two days on the job. And then uh, within a month uh, I was mobilized and we were, our, our battalion was down at Camp Pendleton for about a year. I was probably gone from from home for at least a year and a half before I came home. My wife, she had the hard job. She had three small kids. Mm -hmm. And um, for that year, uh, we were were preparing to go to war. We were serving both our battalion, uh, 2nd Battalion, 23rd Marines. We were serving uh, both as a quick reaction force for any uh, potential activities that might happen in the western United States, anything west of the uh, Mississippi River. And then we set up our, our intel shop, our battalion shop, intel shop, and I had maps all over the walls. We, we uh, learned the, uh, we had the Iraqi terrain down like the back of our hand. We, we knew the area, we, we began to talk to folks, try to get to understand the culture, the language. And so we, we were deeply embedded uh, in what we would likely face. And and it, sure enough, the uh, 1st Marine Division uh, led by General Mattis uh, needed a, another battalion to round out the division. And, and we were selected as an uh, infantry battalion to go. And so I was, by that time, I was the, the uh, intelligence officer for uh, 2nd Battalion, 23rd Marines. And so my mind, Prior to that, uh, was really focused on uh, what we would face, trying to understand the threat that we were going to face and reduce that threat to the level possible, recognizing that you know that this was this was about lives. It, yeah. it wasn't a, it wasn't a game at that point. It wasn't training. It was it was preparing to go to war.
0: Wow. Yeah. Back then that was a lot of uh, talk about weapons of mass destruction and finding them. And I I believe uh, something on Facebook popped up where I believe your wife had posted a, a video that was found in the archives of you being interviewed and talking about it sounded like a false positive where you didn't know what was in that truck but did a good job explaining and I was just kind of into it because I'm like wow yeah this brings (laughs) back memories for me in 2003 my now wife and I we had jetted off to Europe and we were like on the fence about should we go or should we not go because there's a war starting and we were just like ah you only live once we went but We were kind of trying to be low-key American tourists because we just didn't know. (laughs) So that backfired on me horribly in that she, uh, at the last minute, I saw the shoes that she had on. I said, those look too touristy. (laughs) You need to to change those shoes. So she brought something less comfortable. Her feet got bruised. (laughs) And uh, we had uh, sharpied out the USA flag on the backpack. It was just a weird time. (laughs) But here you are deep in thought about what are the threats we're going to face? How big was your battalion? I'm just curious. I mean,
1: uh, a Marine Infantry Battalion is, is roughly uh, a thousand Marines, a little bit more than a thousand Marines. And you, you have um, several infantry uh, companies, weapons company, headquarters, and services company that uh, round out the battalion. Oh, okay, and it, and we're talking uh, Marines, sailors, and, and uh, a mix of uh, other services too in there, and uh, civilian uh, supporting staff. So we had a quite a quite a large crew that we uh, we uh, went over there with, and that's the battalion. And of course, we were part of a much larger regiment and then uh, division that involved several regiments as well.
0: Mm. So okay, a thousand Marines in a battalion. Beef up he had access forces.
1: yeah access to battalions and regiments he regiments. Okay. He, he, uh, he, he had a quite a large um, uh, force
0: okay so this intelligence that you mentioned having how much of it did you get stateside then how much of
1: it did you have to acquire when you got to Saudi Arabia that's a that's a great question you know uh, what we were able to understand was was a lot of the the basic encyclopedic types of information, or using imagery data, uh, signals intelligence. One, understanding where the cities are. We had three-dimensional models to understand what the, the cities, the villages looked like uh, around the, along the way, where the roads were along the way, and where um, some of their forces were deployed as well. And so we, we knew a lot We thought uh, going into it, but as is the case in a war, the enemy gets a vote and they they certainly um, can can take a different approach. And as we cross the border eventually from Kuwait into Saudi Arabia, they they certainly were active voters and took their took their roles and uh, a lot of their armed forces dropped their uniforms. And what the folks we were ended up fighting were a lot of folks who might look like you and me. They mm-hmm. were dressed like you and I might be dressed now or in dishdashes. ashes uh, that they were, but they were, uh, they looked like civilian populace, but uh, many of them were uh, Fedayeen Saddam who were uh, a little bit more fanatical. The first large firefight we got into was in, in Nasiriyah. uh Iraq. And then we, we took a route that we knew pretty well from our study up route 7 it was a route from uh Nasiriyah. and Nazareth on a map is southeast of of uh, Baghdad and it's it's near the the biblical town of Ur where Abraham Uh, was originally from and uh, Abraham was a was a big connecting thing getting off the the topic here but me being able to connect with the the populace understanding some of their uh, where we came together where Christianity Islam Judaism comes together with Abraham was very important but nonetheless we we understood a, a, a lot of the routes but what you see on a map is sometimes a little different than than what you what you get in real life because you think of, of Iraq as, as a big desert. You think of the sand. Southern Iraq is not that. Southern Iraq is essentially a marsh. You're you're in a between the tight once you get to Nassarea, you're between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. You're in a river valley. And it doesn't look so different than the land out north in uh, north of Sacramento, the rice fields, oh, uh, all those wow. fields out there with those, those levees with the roads. And we were on this road that looked like some of those levees near Alberta. And we were on that for days, a week, probably. And uh, our, the Iraqis learned our tactics pretty well. They knew what we were going to do. They would um, start firing from one of the villages or an improvised explosive on the on the road and we would span out well when we would fan out our vehicles would immediately sink in the mud um it wasn't sand it was mud and they would hit us with a with a rocket and it would cause quite a bit of damage and so we lost a lot of marines just learning how to travel learning how to to fight uh, a very different enemy very quickly the rules all changed once we got once we crossed the line of departure
0: yeah wow that's uh that's bringing back memories of just the the press coverage that we ended up seeing after you thought the real battle happened early on where it's just like you mow through but you heard this term keep popping up insurgents, insurgents, insurgency and rocket propelled grenades and uh improvised uh, explosive devices and all the casualties that were coming along with that and you're right it's uh, different terrain what you see on a map doesn't necessarily match when you are out there with your uh, artillery with your equipment you're traveling uh, there's a lot of opportunities to take advantage and uh, that's kind of what i hear what you're describing and like you said you had to adapt so that's really fascinating because you just don't hear that level of detail on the news especially
1: no it's it's certainly um in that tigris euphrates river valley that the terrain is certainly very different with it with the the mud and the um the um the crops and very different than say out west of baghdad where i spent 2008 in Ambar Province, it was it was desert. It was like you might expect, like you might see on the on the news more. But um, you know, going back to that, what we learned, what we knew, a lot of the nuances we, we didn't pick up beforehand. For instance, that we, we knew that southern Iraq was very Shia, uh, um, Shiite uh, versus Sunni in other parts of Iraq, for instance, the north and the western part of Iraq? Well, the the Iranians are Shia. And so uh, as we rolled uh, north into Iraq and as we rolled into Baghdad, the the Iranians were on the ground. You couldn't see them because they are, you see them, but you didn't know the difference because they look like you and me. They look like an, an Iraqi they they don't look any different but they knew their their neighbors and and we didn't as well Hmm. for instance when we went in we went in when they might be harvesting a lot of their crops and the iranians knew this and so for years the the iraqis with their command economy saddam hussein had paid for their crops had bought their crops so they they were able to feed their families we didn't think about that but the iranians were uh, there with, with their money to pay for the crops. What they were buying is the, the uh, Shia's allegiance. Mm. It wasn't only about religion and uh, the, the similarity of religion, it was taking care of basic needs and, and um, jobs and, and food mm. and, and providing for your family. The local populace and their neighbors in Iran knew that. And they thought about that and so we got smarter as we went along but certainly we we learned uh the hard way.
0: Mm. wow that's just this is like an onion where you're just peeling back multiple layers that you just wouldn't think about what all goes into a war and how much you have to learn and how you just can't have a single approach you have to use data and I'm hearing a lot of uh, understanding cultures, <laughs> and you even I think you build your team once you learn these lessons. You bring in linguists, you know, you bring in people that understand cultures, yeah. and that becomes a part of your strategy. Which I think is uh, obviously we we went to Iraq in the early '90s uh, under a different Bush, uh, but uh, similar outcome, but not in the the area of insurgency where it, it just really dragged on. And you had mentioned a city uh, that I heard a lot about on the news. There was another one, Fallujah. <laughs> you know, that was not pretty, but I, I'm really curious about, all right, the Marines. I, I have a, a friend from high school. He's actually in the Marines still. And uh, he just moved, where did he move? He moved to a Marine base. Bahrain, there it is. Yeah. Bahrain. So yeah, he just uh, he's been moving up. I've been following his uh, marine career and stuff, and I guess he's a tank guy, so uh, he likes to blow yes. stuff up.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the Marine Corps just got rid of their tanks. Really? Yes. New new strategy. New strategy. So what? A whole what's whole the different place conversation the we could have. That's right. oh my gosh. It's, well, so, it's 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 anticipating a, a war in the Pacific. Really? Yeah.
0: Hmm. So. Obviously, you and I met through technology, where we both worked at the uh, Department of Toxic Substances Control. You were coming in, I believe, from uh, Rockland PD, uh, a stint at Rockland PD, getting up to speed really fast on uh, administration and HR for DTSC. But let's talk a little bit about technology and warfare. And what are the big differences that you see? I'm sure you really follow what's going on in the armed forces community today as opposed to when you were really in the thick of things in war and stuff so how has technology changed since uh you were in the game
1: that's that's a great question and when i was in the game let's see i retired in uh towards the end of 2015 october 2015 and at that time i was uh, uh helping stand up a um Marine, part of a joint unit, but the Marine Corps element for this joint unit for U.S. Cyber Command out in uh, in the Bay Area, and and I will tell you that the technology is, and I don't need to tell you, you know this as a technology guy yeah, yourself. The yeah. Technology is just growing like leaps and bounds. But I think more important than than the technology is is the folks able to. Understand the technology. The young, the young men and women that are coming in the military today, they're they're just incredibly talented. And in, in well, whether they're coming into the military or working in civilian walks of life, uh, our young people today are just very quickly adapting to the technology and understanding how to apply it and how to use it. And really, that that's what's I, I think so critically important because you could have all the technology in the world, but if you can't find innovative uses for it or, or different ways of applying it in ways that are relevant to today's problems, then it's of, of less use than it might be. And, you know, I, I think about some of the, um, I don't want to get off topic, but I think about some of the Work that you and I did at DTSC, okay, and, and it's very similar to a lot of the work I did in the Marine Corps, where we used technology both in the Marine Corps and at DTSC to drive the decisions that we were making and the actions that we were taking. And we we worked a lot with dashboards, right? Mm-hmm. We, you yeah. you helped to create a a. Um, technological dashboard to cascade and, and array information and to uh, be able to provide useful insight to, to make these decisions. And, and we did something very similar in 2008, where we created a, a similar dashboard. I, I took a, a team, a hand-selected team of Marines and, a, and led a what was called an economic political intelligence cell, and we worked out of Fallujah, Fallujah and Ramadi were my two areas and i had marines operating up and down the, the euphrates river up in haditha and up to kaim and, and up back and forth and um and uh but but we um built essentially a a dashboard to understand the key metrics or the key things on which uh were uh, important to understand uh the our, our progress against the insurgency that was going on in the western part of Iraq. No I different understand. than you and I put together to make decisions uh, at Department of Toxic Substances Control and and, and they were used throughout, um, whether it's government or business or nonprofits today. So I, I think understanding how to apply the technology is, is, is so important, the technology is growing leaps and bounds, but I'm so impressed with the young people's uh, ability to to apply that uh, technology. Because data, you know, we could display it any way we want, but if we don't act on the data, it becomes irrelevant. Yeah, it just sits. It's just ones and zeros sitting there, and it's it's of no use.
0: Yeah. No i I would imagine with what happens in the intelligence community and just armed forces in general, there is so much data and so many different ways that you can slice it. And you have to act fast on it because there's lives potentially uh, at stake. And if you just think about just terrorism in general, and obviously we, we if you look at what happened in afghanistan that that is a long 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 standing war and there's been a lot of data accumulated in that space and if you
1: don't act on data the bad guys get away you know but yeah and that's that's a real problem i mean we uh when i in the Let's see, early or mid 90s, uh, mid to late 90s, I worked with the National Imagery and Mapping Agency and I, I worked in an advanced concepts, uh, advanced technology, advanced concepts branch. where We were looking at what are the requirements for future collection systems, both satellite systems and um, aircraft, uh, both manned and unmanned. And... Um, and it wasn't only the collection system; it was the processing ability, it was the downlink ability, and the ability to once that information is downlinked, how do you process and make relevant use of it? Because otherwise, the data is coming off, and it's it's the proverbial falling on the floor, and and it's just data that you're you're trying to swim through, and you can make just make no sense of it. You've got to be able to make sense of both structured data and unstructured data Mm -hmm. uh, and be able to categorize, be able to pick uh, what's important, but you still need folks to be able to make decisions on the data. Uh, And and I think some of those analytical skills aren't uh, always focused on as much as they could be because uh, the technology is great and you need the technology, but you also need uh, really smart people who know how to analyze the data and deliver it in the right format at the right time to the right people to make those decisions.
0: Yeah. And in the military, that just strikes me as very, a very complex web of, uh, people, processes, and technology. I know that's a, a trifecta that you hear a lot about in state government, but why wouldn't it be the same or similar in the military? I mean, if, if you're thinking about selling somebody that is an officer, a ranking officer on a concept that ha- that rolls up to this, this profound benefit, it's like, uh, you're right. Where do the ideas come from? How reliable is the, uh, the process by which you you collected that information, and how do you sell that to folks? Uh, how do you how do you make use of uh, the, the the very limited time that you you would probably have in a military setting to sell somebody on something, especially something like technology? I'm not talking about like fancy drones or missile systems. I'm talking about yeah. data.
1: Well, and I, and I think to to answer your question there, I, I think um, part of it is understanding what are the needs and what are the decisions that have to be made and and so in the military or in in the intelligence community you you focus on what are the priorities uh what are those decisions what are those priorities so it's not enough to just understand the data you have to understand the data in connection with those who are making the decisions uh you know i i I listen the one of your other podcasts with, uh, um, Paul, uh, Paul Benedetto is that yep. how you
0: pronounce his name. Yep. Paul Benedetto.
1: Yeah. You, you had mentioned, uh, a leadership, um, um, program that you were in with him and, mm-hmm. uh, folks talking about, um, being fearful at, at junior levels of, of, meeting and talking with yes. leaders, right? Yes, And, a, a, an analyst has got to understand the, um, the dilemmas and the decisions faced by those who to whom they're providing the information. Mm-hmm. If they don't, they're they're never going to provide relevant data. And so you've got to under you've got to have a conversation with them. You've got to have real, authentic conversations with them so that they understand those things. And I'll, I'll give you an example here in a minute. But you know, I think of data in, in terms of uh, three when I'm. Pulling data, you have housekeeping data, if you will. Right. The regular stuff you're making your just day-to-day decisions on. You have decision-making data. Hey, this is important stuff. I need to make a decision. And you have alarm data, things that hey, I gotta tell somebody right now. But with any of that data, person's gotta be able to ask, What do I know? Who needs to know it? And have I told them? If you don't do that, the best data in the world becomes useless. So when I was in Iraq in 2008, I had the opportunity to brief the general in charge of the area on a regular basis. On a, on a regular on a nightly basis, I, I briefed a fellow by the name of General Host, And on a regular basis, I briefed... Uh, Fellow by the name of uh, General John Kelly, who later became the president's chief of staff.
0: Right, right.
1: But doing that, they were very good about making it a conversation where it wasn't just briefing them, it was about a series of questions and a dialogue so that you did understand you begin to understand what's on their mind and why are they asking for certain pieces of information and you having the opportunity to say hey this information is unique because it connects to this this and this and they might have not thought of that so it has to be a dialogue it can't just be a linear process where you're sharing information they're Mm -hmm. taking it in and going away Uh, if there's no dialogue There's no reflection and learning in the process. And without the learning, the intelligence process is going to fail. Mm. I
0: I can see why it would be beneficial for it to be a conversation where it gives them a chance to validate that they understand what you're talking about. Yes. And I would think that the messenger would be pretty nervous knowing the importance of the information. Uh, to make sure that it gets through so the fact that they are willing to make it a dialogue I think that helps the messenger a great deal
1: well and, and it might be that their message back to you is hey you're giving me useless information <laughs> i can't I can't do anything with that you know i, I um, uh, we my marines we wrote a uh, an intel report for uh, the commanding general in two thousand eight uh, on on uh, I think it was the, uh, the I think we called it something like the archaic financial structure in Ambar province, the governance um, financial structure, and and uh, I, I remember uh, uh, getting the riot act read to me pretty, pretty clearly about, oh, you know more than me. I'm sitting with the governor every day, and you're going to tell me that they're archaic and that, eh. and so... Yeah, you, you get some feedback that, that becomes very useful in how you might shape your message.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of uh, messages, so clearly you had a role with some pretty prominent, well-known people of giving them information. It's a team effort. Clearly, that's what I'm gathering from what you shared with me. And, and thank you so much for sharing that uh, rich insight. That was just I could kind of see how that would play out just having a father that was in the military and he was an officer a lieutenant commander in the navy but uh uh, my question for you now is that's verbal communication tell me a little bit about written communication in the marines and one of the things i found as i've kind of been around state government now 19 years is that uh, it helps to have people that can write first and foremost but also less is more in a lot of the cases uh, when you get into those influential roles and with those influential people, because everybody's time is precious. So what is a, uh, an effective written communication look like in the Marines or what worked for you?
1: Well, getting putting the bottom line up front, um, writing. Here's my conclusion right away. Um, don't bury your don't bury the headline. So uh, I, t- hmm. I taught my, my Marines to write almost like a, uh, a newspaper writer uh, where okay. they would write um, a, a very clear, meaningful, uh, compelling title to their intel report. Something that's going to you're going to understand what the end result or what the, the message is through that title. But certainly within the first uh, few lines, you're okay. going to understand what are you trying to tell me, because I don't have very long to to make a decision, or right. I've got a lot of information to to weave to uh, weave through, and I can't be, you can't bury the, the headline. So, real quick, real real quick, clear, compelling uh, title, very clear bottom line up front in your article and then provide your supporting evidence following that. And that's, that's typically how we did. And also writing very succinctly, as you said, is, is very important. But, but I think that the lesson I got that sticks with me most on, on writing with few words was from the former chief of police at Rockland police department. Okay. Um, Mark Siemens told me, uh when i was writing for him and i was writing staff reports and so on he uh he said aaron you you write like you you're using words like they're somebody else's money <laughs> and uh <laughs> that was pretty clear to me that that hey i'm using too many words say it with as few words as possible uh, because I don't have time to sit here and parse your words and understand what you're trying to write. Mm, wow! And so that that was a uh, that was pretty meaningful to me. Wow!
0: Yeah, it, that was a, a a lesson that I had to learn along the way, just from finding ways to get feedback from folks. Because I remember one time I had sent you something, <laughs> and your response back was, "You, my friend, are a prolific writer and thinker." <laughs> I used to write the most prolific stuff when we were at Toxics. And with that audience, you had to be careful because it was a scientific customer base. And you could get into some back and forth with people that thought that they knew more about your job than you did. So it became a pissing match. So if you could be succinct and to the point, that still might not buy you any goodwill because they had that thing. If you remember the blog. Absolutely. (laughs) That thing was it was good for a, a laugh at times but it had some really strong content out there and people would pour their hearts and souls into their written product and it was like wow who is that person but yeah. the, as i went to other places it was just like the thing i heard more was uh, less is more succinct and to the point uh, and Be sure to bounce it off of somebody just to make sure because you just never know your audience and
1: that's that's a really good point i I think sharing your work uh being being courageous enough or or being humble enough to to realize that your work isn't always perfect and someone's going to have a different idea or a better idea than you uh and, and being willing to let them cut is is important because the the additive nature of the process that that people as it goes through different cycles it it typically does get better
0: Hmm. so here's another question getting back to the marines and just the military in general i just i think it's fascinating because it's when you join the military there's a very clear purpose service of country right And whether you're in one branch of the armed forces or another, you're all working towards the same end goal, whether it's in times of war or it's in times of peace, but there's a pecking order, there's a chain of command and there's generals for a reason. There's all these people that aren't out there on the battlefield, uh, like the, the the days of the Pharaohs, you know, where the Pharaoh had to be out there in his chariot flinging arrows and all sorts of good stuff. And there was a propaganda machine behind somebody like Ramses the Great, nothing like that in uh, our flavor of the military. But tell me about the ranks and how communication flowed through the ranks. And when you came across somebody that had talent, how did you harness that talent, uh, nurture
1: that talent within the ranks? That's a really good question. You know, I, I, started off, um, I started off as a private. I started off as an enlisted Marine and I uh, went up through you know, Lance Corporal, Corporal Sergeant, Staff Sergeant. And then I uh, got a commission and uh, became an officer and worked my way up through the ranks to uh, Lieutenant Colonel before I retired. But I'll tell you, any good idea, idea I had was almost always given to me by someone else, various ranks, and uh, there's no there's no monopoly on ideas. Um, uh, ideas can come from anyone, anybody, any rank, and and, and you know, typically, I, I think that the best ideas often came from from the mavericks, if you will. The, and what I mean by a, a maverick here is, is someone who is willing to to push the system a little bit and willing to have, have a have a unique idea. And and the Marine Corps has a tendency to protect mavericks in some way um, and to look for people that have those uh, that are willing to be a risk taker and to. To, to challenge a little bit. And, and I think that's important, whether it's in the military or in the civilian world, to, we, we talk about training people, but I think one of the best training opportunities you can give someone is to work out of their normal activity oh. uh, for a while, right? Okay. Yeah, to, to, Because it, it, it exposes you to new ideas, it exposes you to, to different processes. And when you come back to what it is that you do, that you have a whole different lens through which to see the world but like i said i, I would oftentimes get ideas all the time get ideas from people of various ranks almost always uh, uh lower ranks uh than myself and if you're going to build trust uh you need to listen to them i don't listen enough i i think or or at least I don't um, demonstrate enough, I, that my, my kids, my, my youngest son comes up with great ideas and all of my kids do. And yeah, you know, I, th- I think whether it's listening to uh, your kids or wh- whether it's listening to uh, subordinates or, or anyone with good ideas is very important. And I, I think I could have done a better job, as I said, um, all around, whether it is listening to people. But I think it, it's, it's having the humility to recognize that your ideas aren't always the best. Yep. And that uh, others uh, are going to have a different lens, a different way of seeing things. And as long as you, I think where I was going with this is that as a Marine, one of the things we're taught is to give a very clear commander's intent. Of a clear, very clear intent of what success looks like mm. and what it feels like. And once everyone has a clear understanding of the problem and what success looks like, then you can unleash the initiative. You can unleash the, uh, the aggressive approach to solving a problem and, and let people uh, use their intellect and their creativity um, to come up with the ideas that you never could have done by yourself.
0: Well, you said some interesting things in that <clears throat> nugget of wisdom, and I'm just gonna distill that a little bit here. So I heard something that I wasn't expecting to hear. It's it's one thing to talk about the, the, the intent, be, being very clear on the intent, what that looks like, the vision, basically. What I wasn't expecting to hear was about what it feels like. And to me, what that means is it's very important given what's at stake in that particular world, to have a high percentage of buy-in, but also to have the parameters in a way to where there's some fluidity, there's some flexibility, there's some room for creativity because you're gonna get a stronger end product at the end rather than prescribing every little detail of A through Z. It's like, no, just give A, give Z,
1: Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't come overnight, Uh, building a team, building a team with trust uh, takes time. And uh, but if you can't build trust, your leadership is obsolete. And you have to have that vision. And if you've worked together, if you've practiced doing things in a Collaborative yet distributive way, and you've rewarded success, or and you've even rewarded failure. If you know people are failing at full speed, they're trying to do, they're trying to accomplish something that's uh, in line with that vision. But sometimes, you know, in technology, you you build a, a prototype, you build an iteration and then that one doesn't solve the problem but it gets you a little bit further. Mm-hmm. And so you you reward you, you reward the initiative and if people know where you're going to they just got you a little bit down further down the road. And you're rewarding the both success and failure as long as they're working towards the vision and they're doing everything legally, ethically, and within within budget right And if they can do those things let let great people do great work
0: but to your point about trust trust is absolutely one of the pillars yeah of an effective team just as important as a strong leader is, and sometimes leadership, it takes a minute to settle in, to season. It, it, it takes different pieces being added and subtracted along the way for the leader to evolve into who they need to be. But that trust, I mean, it, it's kind of like you see it in so many different military movies or series and stuff. The one that comes to mind for me, and I used to... <laughs> I didn't binge watch it. I just watched it over and over again because I just liked it. <laughs> it was uh, the Band of Brothers Yeah, on HBO. That one was great. You just watch sick winners evolve You know, over the course of a war into this really strong leader that people respected. But then you had a guy like uh, Lieutenant Dyke, <laughs> who was kind of a, a transplant. He was just punching his ticket. Uh, he wasn't really invested and people didn't want to follow him onto the battlefield, which is kind of where you end up as a leader, where do people want to follow your lead? Or are you saying enough of the right things to uh, resonate with folks to where they, they will bend over backwards for you? They, they do see the vision. They will uh, contribute their uh, topped value.
1: Yeah. You know, Mike, I, I think you, you touched on something there. It, you got to love those you lead. You got to love them. And you got to care about the mission and sometimes caring about the mission and loving folks. uh, You're you're going to have to hold people accountable. Yeah. And if you don't hold people accountable, you're going to erode trust among the rest of the team. But people will know that, hey, I do care about you. I care about the mission and we're going to hold each of us accountable when i step into a new role typically i I write an expectations letter Mm -hmm. very Um, important that's right and in my expectations letter i write what what i expect of you what you should expect of me but also what our customers should expect of us and i send that to our customers so that they know that this is the type of culture that we want to be known for, that we want to build, that we want to emulate. And and then we need to have a conversation about it on a regular basis. I know you've worked in, uh, for, for your whole career is working in organizations that talk about mission, vision, values, yep. and those values mean nothing if you don't have those difficult conversations about what those words mean what they look like what they feel like and how do you actualize them and what does it look like when you're not embodying those values so i, I think if you do those things and if you are authentic and if you encourage and reward that type of of transparency and people feel that their res- their ideas are respected trust comes trust trust will grow and if you don't it'll burn fast it'll, you 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 just won't have it yeah that's
0: kind of really hitting home for me because uh, I've seen people just come in it's not even hitting the ground running as a leader it's just that you come in you're clearly not invested and it shows and people start checking out because it's like you, you don't have that credibility. So in terms of an expectations letter, I think it's a good thing. So here we are on another cruise where there's just some solid gold just being spewed, spewed <laughs> on the airwaves. This is great. So hopefully people are taking notes, but this, this should uh, really hit home to a lot of people. You don't have to have a, any link to the military. This is just life. You know, this is stuff that happens in life. And for me, those expectations, it's like, it's not something that you just write out the gate and send. You have to get to know the intended recipient. You have to get to know the people that are on your team. So that takes some time. So it's something that you, you have to do a fair amount of listening. So that it's, it's very specific to the environment that you're working in, the outcome that you hope to achieve. and people feel invested because you probably talked with them about what keeps them up at night at some point. And that's not just the people that are working under you, it's your customers. Like you were saying, that is key. It's like uh, we were in very deep waters that last podcast talking about relationships. And it was this, it wasn't even a formula, but there was so much depth there. And it was just like all about people. And without the people as a leader, you're not going anywhere very fast at all and i've had many managerial roles i've been a manager most of my career and it seems that the longer i'm in the game the more steam i pick up uh, because i've figured out what makes people tick to always take the time to understand that mission that that strategic plan those things aren't just put out there just because they look good and they sound good and they smell good you know they're pretty actionable documents
1: and yeah, are, are you trying to achieve them or are you just or are they for show? Yeah,
0: they shouldn't be just for show. I see something in the background, uh, California State Parks. That was a pretty fun job for you. I'm thinking, uh, <laughs> want to yeah, share I, some of your experiences from there?
1: I had a great time at State Parks. You know, I, I grew up in in a uh, small town of Texas. Boy, well, it was small then, it's about the size of Roseville now, Sugarland, Texas. And uh, and growing <laughs> up in Texas, you you study Texas history and in all the uh, all of the each grade as you you work through school. And, it, and when I came to California, when we moved here and our kids started school, I didn't have that background in California history. But yeah. at State Parks, State Parks is the custodian of not only the natural history and uh, the 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 beaches and the deserts and the, the redwoods and the forests and but it's also the custodian of the cultural history of all of, of these the you know you know the, the the missions the the state capitol, the adobe. there's just so many historical aspects the state historical resources commission uh, falls under state parks uh, all these these markers that you see around Uh, state parks is just a uh, phenomenally large has a phenomenally large responsibility for protecting both the cultural and natural resources of the state and and I had a great time I I originally or initially served as the deputy director for administrative services there Mm -hmm. and then uh, I served for a while as the chief deputy director of, of state parks. And um, I just had a fabulous time. I, I loved every minute of it. I love traveling the state and, and uh, learning about the state and uh, just, I, I can't, I can't, I could talk for hours on the state parks. I just love it.
0: <laughs> well, you know, this, this cruise, we, we have uh, specific ports of call. We're not doing a transatlantic cruise, although that would be fun. You know like a 12-hour marathon cruise i don't think that i'm up for that but uh, we we are happy to have guests on again if there's a cause for it and obviously we could talk about a lot of different things but uh, the military and spinning off into leadership i think was the the, the perfect uh, voyage for this uh, episode because it's just there's some correlations there and it really Uh, is special for me just knowing that my dad was in the military and what he represented in the navy and you read my book and i I talked about uh, that whole thing in the book about just not really knowing him and everything that came with that and then getting the opportunity to get to know him and i had observed him when he was still active duty and stuff when he was in town and you could tell that he just had this aura about him and he would take me on base, 32nd Street Naval Station. <laughs> and it was just a real treat as a young kid to see people just stop what they're doing and salute. Didn't understand it, why it was happening. But uh, eventually, the more you saw it happen, you're like, oh, OK. Yeah, this is, you respect the title. You don't necessarily know the man or woman. You you respect the title. You respect the position. and. That stuck with me because it was like he commanded respect. And then when he became a civilian, he kind of had some synergies uh, where he used his naval knowledge and background in the civilian world to repair uh, decommissioned naval ships and repurpose them. That was a pretty cool job. But he had to hold a lot of different people accountable in that role. And then he grew into a project manager from there. And then he grew into a director of planning and scheduling and then a director of business development. And then that was it.
1: Mike, where did career. your dad work? Uh, did he work at a uh, Shipyard?
0: Yeah. Which ship- shipyard? The shipyard was called uh, Continental Maritime. And then they got bought by uh, Northrop Grunman.
1: Okay. My father-in-law was a planner and estimator at the Long Beach Naval Shipyard. Mm. Rone's mm-hmm. dad worked in her, her dad... Or her grandpa, his dad, also worked at the shipyard. So I I was just wondering maybe if they crossed paths at some point.
0: I am sure in the 80s that they did because at one point my dad was commuting from San Diego to Long Beach. Oh, wow. Because he didn't want to uproot the family over and over. So we we weren't like, uh, sometimes in the military, you could be like a military moving family and you could just have lots of different places that you go and it could be very disruptive. What was your dad's
1: uh, first name, Mike? uh, William. William. I'm going to ask my father-in-law if he ever went into him. He will remember.
0: Yeah, William Cave. Uh, So he was going to Long Beach and I guess, I don't know if he stayed uh, on base. I'm sure he did, but he did that commute and then he would come back to San Diego, but uh, just okay. the the respect that he commanded in that role and he understood what the job took and then when he got out, it was the same thing. So, I think those military principles left a lasting impression on his life even after he retired. And I, I think that that's kind of the same for you on some level. It's just certain things just stay with you. Certain things that were Uh, ingrained in you. They just stay with you and you can apply that in different ways to different situations with different people. Hence, why you were such an effective leader when you uh, join civil service and state ranks in particular, you came in at a pretty high level. You came in at an executive level, which your background uh, was commensurate with that. That allowed you to come in and build trust quickly, build relationships quickly, and... uh, you know you had a bag of tricks that you could see what worked in this environment not everything is going to work but at least you had a bag of tricks
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i I, you know i think more important than than tricks i I, hopefully i was and and i know i believe you have to be you have to be honest you have to be humble yeah and you got to be willing to take a little bit of risk yeah and i think about you know these, these. talked about the young men and women in our military today, uh, General Mattis is uh, fond of, of a phrase that, that I think that he uses often uh, that, that I think is so apropos here is that you know, members of our military uh, today, they, they look past all these political arguments that, w- that we have, right? They, they don't think we don't think so much about those things but these young men and women they, they write a blank check to the American people payable with their lives yeah and um and it certainly gives you a different frame of mind when you when you take on any other role in life and uh i've just had an opportunity to to work with some just wonderful people you being one of them and i um you know i appreciate this opportunity tonight to to talk with you i've I've had fun just uh um catching up with you on things but yeah yeah uh, it's a great conversation thank you
0: no, my pleasure, and that's what this cruise ship is uh, about. It's pretty smooth ride. It's got all the accommodations that you need, but we're striving to just have a very natural conversation about whatever. And oh, I got he's my cruise hat on. He's got his cruise hat on. I've got one here. I, I know you there. I know you've <laughs> not seen that thing. <laughs> well, it's it's a it's a brand, you know. It's it's. Coming along, I, I like where things are going. I like the people that are coming aboard the cruise ship and the conversations that we're having. It's always good to talk about the military because uh, people need to understand that this, this is a huge commitment that people make uh, to serve this country. And there's a lot that goes into it. We're, we're, we might not be in an obvious war, but we have a presence all over the world and I've always been drawn to, is there a, an opportunity for me? But now I'm like almost too old, I'm 41. And I, I think I flirted with it in my mid thirties and late thirties. And I think one of the things that I just couldn't get past was uh, anytime I talked to a recruiter, they were always saying, you need to come in as enlisted. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not falling for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got a couple degrees. And uh, I I, want to be of service, but uh, I want to do something very specific. I was looking at it as a way to enhance leadership, uh, solve some real problems out there, maybe something in the intelligence world like you're talking about. I do have a passion for uh, foreign languages. I, I flirt around with those. But... Technology is another thing, but you could always, as you've seen, you could put really targeted, tactful spins on technology to address problems. Look at what we talked about earlier with data and how it's not just presenting data. You have to understand what you're presenting and you have to understand how people are gonna use it and the urgency. Like if you're in a time of war, it's pretty urgent. Mike,
1: do you speak, you mentioned some languages. Do you speak uh, foreign languages?
0: i do Uh, french is my strongest one but i when i was in the community college in san diego i actually took russian Ah. and uh ended up in toulouse france studying abroad in 2001 and i met some dutch people so i started learning dutch and i've always just had an ear for it but french is the one that i keep coming back to flirting around with some Spanish, all the other good stuff. But yeah, so it's it's kind of my little hobby in this coronavirus pandemic. I just, every day I go into the Duolingo app and I uh, practice and I have a streak going. It's like 236 days in a row that I've gone in there and done something with a couple of uh, streak freezes uh, where I was just too busy, where I could just by by the uh, by my way into continuing my streak <laughs> my uh, my
1: my son um, um, speaks Mandarin wow and uh, he, he's he's got a uh, not uh, duo duo link it's same same uh, uh, um, deer link the no, same one do link uh, anyway he, he has a uh, an app like that but he I think he has a streak of like 853 days Whoa. using it. He's he's uh, he's pretty pretty proficient with it right now. He does um, uh, pretty good. Same, I think it's the same app that you described, though.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's great. It's very tailored to keeping you motivated, which is what we need in these times. So I've just really taken to going in there every day I've, I've had to retool in this pandemic because one of the big things that i lost that was really hard for me was uh i didn't realize i had a pretty established routine until it was taken away from me <laughs> the commute that that time to oh, decompress yeah. before i go to work uh, i work out bradshaw and gaty out in Almost rancho area, it's still Sacramento proper. But when that was taken away, that was like, all right, this doesn't make any sense. You know, you, you have these kids and bless their hearts and <laughs> all <that laughs> other fun stuff. But having that commute was just sometimes I would just drive to work and not have any music on.
1: Nothing. Yeah. You got to decompress. You got to focus a little bit.
0: Yeah. Well, you talked about getting in a frame of mind to go do what you did over in uh, the Middle East. It's the same thing on a day in, day out basis for work. You have to be in a work frame of mind. And then there's turning off that work frame of mind and being dad, as you know. And sometimes you bring it home with you. But when it's hard. Yeah. the, The lines were blurred with this pandemic, which was what was really hard. It was like holy crap there's no escape from anything (laughs) you know you you could go the whole day without going outside that's not healthy uh so podcasting was a way for me to reinvent myself uh the language thing just building new habits uh, piano just really challenging myself to you're
1: a talented man mike be Be, be different
0: oh thank you thank you uh, you just don't want uh, me kicking you off the cruise ship
1: no i I like your porch in your backyard i've been watching that too i like what y'all did there
0: yeah well we're we're gonna be redoing that because uh it didn't turn out like it should have it was some miscommunication and uh, as hard as we tried to hold the people that built it accountable it was just uh i don't know it missed the mark so we're gonna do it right but we have some other stuff going on here soon with um, going to get some new flooring, going to get even more concrete. So, there you go. We're, we're like, this is the the final frontier for us as far as uh, California is concerned. When I retire, I'm out. I'm going somewhere else. I just need to figure out where. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, we're trying to make this place as functional as possible. Rockland's there nice. It's, it's a nice little community, but we need space outside of the house proper to spill out into so that back. Uh, patio is nice um yeah. but we're gonna make it even better and then we're gonna have something similar in the front of the house to where when it gets nice outside we'll be able to people watch in the front or have the kids out back and it's been really nice settling in the last year specifically the last three months i think it's really 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 felt like home just because the kids finally stopped asking um uh, when's the world going to get better because that was a daily thing it was like i really don't know and with how things are now it's like i don't have a clue i'm not even i don't have a crystal ball i'm not even gonna try to predict but they're happy here they're back in school for now um good you know they, they had their little woes with zoom they were rejecting it because it was just like ugh, every day at eight thirty in the morning and they weren't getting anything out of it you talk about connecting like we had yeah. this uh, virtual campus at Rockland, and I had to intervene. I had to make some changes, Aaron. And it was like, I didn't like what was happening to the kids. It's bad enough that they lost something in this pandemic with the social interaction. They're pretty social yeah. kids. And uh, when I saw them kind of checking out, kindergartners checking out, I'm like, "Nah, this isn't cool. This This is something that we need to resolve. And it was just like, talk to some people at the school Said, hey, this is what we need. It's that hundred percent over a hundred percent agreement. Good. Ask for a hundred percent of what you need, a hundred percent of the time, while not expecting to get any of it. <laughs> That's great. So we we basically got them into a new school. Oh well, same school, but different teacher, different protocol, and then now they're back in school, thriving again, which is the most important thing, and interacting with folks, which is. Where I think it's like I don't know what the new normal is going to look like, but I am a little worried because uh, I don't know. We're, we're humans, I think, are social creatures by nature. Yeah, and there's
1: all this we're artificial gonna get, stuff. We're going to get through it, you know. It's it's gonna we're going to look a little differently. We're going to think a little differently after this, but um, you know, I, we're an adaptive race, and we'll come out of it well.
0: Well, I think uh, all this aside, all this crazy pandemic stuff aside, we are really living in an amazing time in terms of technology and uh, our ability to adapt. This was one Not of true. the biggest tests of our ability to adapt. I mean, granted, people are back to panic buying again. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but crazy. Uh,
0: if you follow SpaceX, you can see rockets being launched satellites being launched and the rockets relanded repeatedly, you know, a couple of times a week. Sometimes we just launched humans off of American soil again, you know, really exciting stuff that's happening. And that guy, Elon Musk, is just pushing the envelope. I don't know if you own any Tesla stock, but my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So just really innovative stuff going on right now. And I think it's going to get even better as uh new advances come out i'm just really excited to see hyperloop i don't know if you're following what's going on with that i am yeah that's i I just love that when the plans came out people were just like poo-pooing it poo-pooing it like this is not gonna happen this is fantasy and then a guy like sir richard branson picks it up stamps it with virgin funds it you know gets resources going to it now you've got one that's gonna happen in Dubai, one that's gonna happen in the Midwest, probably something in Texas, and it's gonna change how we get around. We've so, got a dream. You, you got a dream. Can't
1: get there if you don't dream.
0: Yeah, you got a dream, and it's like right. You're going to see people as more people are working from home now than ever before. But you're going to see people living nowhere near where they work, but still able to get there in a reasonable amount of time. Like not like a two hour commute, but seriously, yeah. like San Francisco to Los Angeles in 30 minutes when they get the whole thing built out. It's going to be doable. It's going to change how we live, where we live. It's going to be wild. I don't know. So true. And here I am, 41 years old. You know, I, I probably have 18, 19 more years of civil service left, but I'm trying to figure out what it is that I want to do after civil service, because I, I think I understand where I'm going and what I'm capable of. But when I'm done with this, I want to do something else fun, Right. It helps oh, others. Cool. So one of the things I talked about the last podcast, I think it was the the first uh, part. He asked me, "So how'd you get into this?" And I had told him that my dad used to call Bingo. At uh, I like heard the that yes. it was awesome. He had this voice. Let me let me let me sh- share with you what it sounded like. It was like <clears throat> I fifty one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like people were I excited 51. about yeah I fifty one Bingo. <laughs> He was just very artistic, and he really practiced at it, and uh, he dragged me there to the casino. That was his family. He used to go hang out there and stuff. That was cool. Got to know people, but he had that voice. It wasn't a radio voice, but he was passionate about it. That's cool. That's really cool. Well, um, I think we can uh, dock this cruise ship and uh, disembark. I think uh, this was a, a great chat about your military career thank you for sharing all those details I know it can't be easy talking about war uh, it's unfortunately a necessary uh, evil It's uh, the, the, the price that we've kind of had to pay for the, the freedoms that we enjoy today and it's a revolving thing where we have people willing to serve from every generation so thank you for your service really appreciate it thank you and uh, for all you listeners, I'm going to ask Aaron to share some final words of wisdom for the listeners out here. And I will kind of tap into that and tag along.
1: I, I would just say in terms of leadership, I go back to you. You got to love those who you lead. and You got to care about what you're doing. And if uh, if, if you do love, uh, you're going to reward Successes. You're going to reward failures when it's appropriate, and you're going to hold folks accountable. But ultimately, you're going to get there to your your final destination together, and in a good way. So, uh, Mike, I really appreciate uh, this opportunity sure. to, uh, to to share with uh, my thoughts and uh, and just to chat with you. I, I, I learn so much every time I talk with you, and I really enjoy it. Thank you so much.
0: Well, let's definitely keep in touch. I have some parting words of wisdom to kind of tack into what you've said here about you gotta love who you lead. That is so true. And it, it you mentioned it earlier. It really does take time. However, I look at one common theme across all of these podcasts that I've done pretty much has been mentoring and what it means to be a mentor and to be a leader and inspiring people. And here's where I'm going with this. I've seen people sit out getting into leadership because they don't want the headache. They don't want the stress. They don't want to hold people accountable that they were drinking buddies with or friends with and stuff. But some of us have, I think, a call to serve, to answer that call, that greater call. And I want to see people not sit this leadership thing out and you and I have seen people that have the ability, and at least give it a shot. That's right. At least try. Because you don't want to be somebody that opted out, that has all the makings to be a great leader or a successful and effective leader, even if it's in a specific role or for a specific duration. But you sit it out, and then you see somebody else come in and stink it up, and then people are blaming you for this happening. You know, because sometimes people come in and they stink it up so bad that there's no amount of decontamination that can resolve it. It's kind of like a nuclear bomb went off and you've got to wait for the uh, half-life to.
1: (laughs) Somebody's got to stand in the gap. Why not you?
0: Yeah. Why not? So, But I've had people, Aaron, uh, to this point where I've kind of said, give it a try. And they did. And then they got out and they were like, you know what? At least I tried. At least I know that it's not for me. And I'm like, bravo. That's what it's about. So that's what I was kind of going to say on that. It's like, if you're getting into it, keep trust in mind for sure. And be prepared to measure. I think that that's key. I think as a leader, it's one thing to be spewing off uh, orders and directions and stuff. But measure how, how that's making people feel how that's uh, resonating with the people that you're leading uh, can you feel can you sense in their tone uh, that there's some mutiny starting or that you need to make some adjustments or are you just oblivious to uh, the, the impact that your words have on people so
1: you could only hear that with what you said earlier you you could yeah. only hear those things if if you have a trusting atmosphere and if you've built that and so um you yeah all these things that you're talking about mike boy i, I sure agree with um you've got to have a transparent trusting caring relationship and and uh people are going to to be open with you if you if you have that and and you'll understand how well you're doing and if you're intellectually honest with yourself yeah. emotionally honest
0: yeah No. Um, emotional intelligence is absolutely huge and i i think uh Surrounding yourself with people that you can trust, that you can bounce things off of, like uh, written work products. <laughs> That's right. Uh, practicing a presentation, you 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 know better than anyone. You have to be prepared to have those tough conversations with people if you're going to make that progress uphill. So true. So, so true. I, I'm glad that you offered that stuff up. And uh, again, thanks for coming aboard the cruise ship. And uh, we'll have to get together at some point. Uh, soon when uh the orders get lifted
1: and you can start socializing again (laughs) we love it we love it well mike thank you so much and uh um look forward to seeing you again soon all right man captain caveman out